my mission in life is to just get people to respect and get familiar with and comfortable with uncertainty. And not in a, like, I can't do anything kind of way that just diminishes you, but in a way that almost, like, engages your curiosity, engages your skepticism, and sort of keeps you from the sort of things that derive from over-certainty. You can't trust what you see. You can't trust what you hear. You have to allow for uncertainty, just scientifically. Like, there's a, it isn't even like a philosophical thing to say, like, you never know what's going to happen. It's like, no, really, you never know what's, you don't even know what's happening right now. The podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. I'm Polly Reese. Fam, I am delighted and humbled to bring you the legendary David Dylan Thomas. He is a filmmaker, author, podcaster, speaker, thought leader. The ultimate multi-hyphenate. David's primary life question how do you get comfortable with uncertainty? Can you get comfortable with uncertainty? Well, David says you can. And he has a list of credits to back that thinking up. A TED Talk, his book, Design for Cognitive Bias, his first podcast, The Cognitive Bias Podcast, his second podcast. Lately, I've been thinking about. A quick content warning off the top, we do talk a decent amount about bullying, race-based violence, depression, and a little bit of slavery. So if these are not things that are right for you to listen to, feel free, switch this one off and we will catch you in the next one. In our first ever live taped episode, we talk about how design impacts our lives, questions on the nature of good and bad, and how we know things, or epistemology, if you're fancy. Plus, David takes questions from the audience live. This was taped before a live audience at Venture Cafe Philadelphia. I am so grateful to bring you David. Please enjoy. David Dylan Thomas runs a, a, progr a program called Idea Exchange, um, among other things. is a filmmaker, has written this lovely little book called Design for Cognitive Bias, has his own podcast, has at least one TED Talk that I've seen, thought leader, author, filmmaker, convener of great minds, um, some, some of which who have participated in different components of like his sphere of things are here today. Um, how did you get to this multi-hyphenate space <laughs> person that you are? Uh, very clumsily. So um, I didn't go far enough back, I guess, a couple threads to pull on, right? Like, how did I arrive at being really interested in cognitive bias? How did I arrive at sort of storytelling and movie making? And how did I arrive yeah. at sort of being in the digital space? So the cognitive bias piece, I would say, comes from my mother was a psych major at UCLA. And, well, you know, my wife is a pediatric neuropsychologist at CHOP. So I've always been adjacent to people who are fascinated by the brain. And then by osmosis would be like, hey, here's this book by Oliver Sacks. Oh my God, the brain is fascinating. <laughs> um, and what really tipped it into full-time obsession was I saw a talk by Iris Bonnet called uh, Gender Equality by Design. Mm. And uh, it's on YouTube. You can find it. It's fantastic. 
Um, but she really gets at this notion of there are design choices you can make that actually influence, you know, biases that we have. So a simple example might be the way some hotel rooms, you find this a lot in Europe. Um, if you want the lights to turn on, you got to take your hotel key and put it in a little slot. Otherwise, the light won't turn on. That guarantees you are in the room when the lights are on. Sure. Once you leave and you take your key with you, which you're bound to do, right? Lights turn off. So rather than make you do all the cognitive effort of, I want, I, I want to be a green person. I'm going to make sure to turn off every light in this room before I leave. It's just saying, we'll take care of that. The design will take care of that for you. It is built so that the default is green, right? So you're taking advantage of design and people's sort of, you know, cognitive limitations to say, you know what, let's remove some of that cognitive load. That would be sort of a more positive example of using design to, yeah. uh, to mitigate or take advantage of bias. So when I kind of saw that space for ill or for good, I sort of realized, okay, I need to learn everything I can about uh, bias. And I literally yeah. went to the... Um, uh, Wicca, the Rational Wiki page, which has a whole list of cognitive biases, well over a hundred. And I looked at that and realized I am not going to figure this out in a day. <laughs> so I said, here's what I'll do. I'll take one a day, learn about that bias. And next yeah. day move on to the next one. And which was fascinating. And this turned me into the guy who wouldn't shut up about cognitive bias. Uh, so eventually my friends were like, please, Dave, just get a podcast. So that led to the bias. <laughs> so while all of that is happening. There's also this history I have in storytelling. I've been making movies ever since I was a kid, um, and I still do. I'm working on one right now. And, you know, that just came from, I don't know, I just at a very young age. I was fairly isolated as a kid. I didn't have a lot of friends, so a lot of my time would be spent kind of sitting down, you know, watching old Doctor Who episodes and then, like, learning story structure from that. And I'm going to pause you right there. Did yeah. you have a particular, do you have a doctor? Oh, I grew up with Tom Baker. Perfect. They would show... This is in the, yeah, this is in the thank, 80s, thank you. right? <laughs> so this is, you know, nowadays things um, are day and date. They will appear in Britain. They will appear in America at the same yes. time. At the time, though, you have to wait years before any episode. So yeah. Tom Baker's starting in like the early 70s. I'm not getting them until like the 80s. So I'm watching the first couple seasons of Tom Baker almost a decade later in um, Locker in Maryland, right? And yeah. learning story structure from that, becoming fascinated by that and just... I think what really pushed me over the edge was I was a kid who was bullied a lot. I'm not a big kid. I'm a nerdy kid, nerdy black kid, even more of a niche, and especially then. And um, I was given an assignment. So we were, the whole class was given this vocabulary assignment. Here's the 10 vocabulary words and put them all in a story. That's how you learn sure. the words. And everyone else would write pretty normal stories. I wrote a story about like, people who go to a distant planet and find dinosaurs there and like, you know, cause I mean, that's what I, what I, what I do with these things. And, um, I read the story and I noticed when I was reading the story, all of the kids were wrapped, right? They just were bullying me. They were paying attention to me. I'm like, Oh, and somewhere in the back of my head, it clicks. Oh, here's a survival strategy. Here's a way to not get bullied. It's to How tell could amazing you be stories. bullied if people were fascinated by yeah. you. And so, Part that part just being encouraged, like anyone, especially when you're young, if someone tells you you're good at something, you kind yeah. of double down on it. And people told me I was good at writing. So that's kind of the storytelling thread. And that, in a weird way, led me to the web and tech part of it. Because uh -huh. where I entered into tech was with um, uh, distance education. Okay. So um, Center for Talented Youth is this program run from Johns Hopkins University. And they take kids who are like in middle school who test really, really well. And then they give them like college level courses. 
So I was teaching um, narrative nonfiction to a bunch of um, like, you know, 11 year olds and 12 year olds and 13 year olds. And there are 11 year olds out there who can write you under the table. Of like, course. I such respect. But and this is all being done, you know, remotely. So we're this is 2000. We were sending out the, the lessons on a CD-ROM. OK, this is for, for you old heads <laughs> out there. And um, and we just had basically a forum and forums haven't really changed in like 20 years, like as, as a format for sure, like it's basically Reddit. Right. Sure. Um, but with less cursing. Right. So we had the forum <laughs> where they would share and workshop their work. And I would see these kids from like all over the planet just having these conversations, people who may have never actually met for their entire lives. I mean, this has been 20 years since then. So these are like full grown adults now. Uh-huh. But there was, I didn't even know that could happen, right? And it was that optimistic time in the early days of the web where like, oh, this could be a way to connect people from all over the earth. And they were actually having civil discussions about things like homeschooling, which was very controversial at the time. Um, and dispelling myths about homeschooling and all that stuff and just having these great yeah. conversations. I'm like, okay, the web is this great place for content and connection, right? And I think that was kind of led me into content strategy, which formerly is where I kind of, situated myself in the world of of web design um and since then in ux so the pairing of cognitive bias with ux and content strategy was basically saying here's this thing i'm fascinated with here's my day job and i'm starting to see these connections all of that leads to the book design for cognitive bias leads to me convening people to talk about interesting things leads to me continuing to tell stories uh through film and and other ways uh but yeah like because it is a multi-hyphenate destination, it is a multi-hyphenate yeah. series of paths to that destination. There are <laughs> lots of different like little little stops along the way that that add another component of the hyphenate. Yeah, um, I'm I'm gonna sort of guide us back through a couple of them to to add a little bit more uh, meat to the bone. Can you tell me a little bit more about content strategy mm. when you when you talk about that? What what do you mean? So for me. It was a little bit of a dodge, right? So when I was in um, 2004, my wife and I moved to Philadelphia, um, and I eventually get, I had to find a new job because weirdly the distance education group didn't want me doing my job remotely. (laughs) I still to this day don't understand that. So I had to find a new job. And eventually I found work with um, the uh, North American Publishing Company. It's a trade publishing company right here in Philadelphia up on Spring Garden. And they had all these different magazines there were print magazines because that was still a thing. And, yeah. um, but all of those had an online <clears throat> presence. So I was the online editor in chief, basically in charge of the online presence for these five different print publications. Okay. Um, which as a job is basically content strategy and making decisions, especially digital ones about how are we going to release content? How are we going to charge for it or not charge for it? How are we going to distribute it? How are we going to to take care of the care and feeding of it, maintain it, what content are we going to get rid of? You know, all of those decisions are decisions that a content strategist is meant to inform. Okay. Now, this, the name content strategy didn't really exist yet. And I still remember the very first meeting of the content strategy Philly meetup uh, here in Philadelphia in 2011 during the very first Philly Tech Week um, was a room full of like ex-journalists and marketers who were like, what have we been doing? Oh, this is what it's called. <laughs> right, um, and it wasn't really until then you start to hear that phrase come up a lot, and it wasn't even until a few years later that I actually had a job with 
content strategist actually on the card. It was when I started doing agency work okay. at like digital agencies. Uh, but in terms of that piece of it, it was really getting it on the ground floor of something that, because it was so loosely defined, kind of let me stick my nose in a bunch of places that didn't necessarily belong. Like if I was a coder, there was a very distinct lane. Like this is when we're <laughs> going to bring you in to do this and this. Content strategy is loose enough for people to be like, oh no, you need a content strategist for that. Right? I, 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 I should like, you know, I can talk about this, that, or the other and still call it content strategy because mm -hmm. it wasn't really yeah. defined yet very strictly. Um, still isn't, by the way. But um, <laughs> but there are more. I, there are more. I mean, I can be a content strategist yeah. for all you know. Yeah, there are more lanes now. I'll say, but I can still kind of very loosely sure. kind of like talk about these things. But yeah, that. Um, but that's how I got. That's why I arrived at picking that area to kind of label myself as a player in tech. Okay, so so you were you were there like right right when that language was being developed. There there was the opportunity to to just play with actual language mm -hmm. um i i would describe that as as startup energy as found <laughs> as as founder energy yeah um what does that feel like mm. to be in that space it's a mix right because it's, it's funny you say founder energy because i was definitely not looking to found anything and the journey from going because the other thing that happened recently i probably add some context to this so in 2021 i quit my full-time job and Basically, when I'm out doing what I do now, which is full-time giving talks and workshops and being supported by the revenue for my book. Um, but that was a very long decision process. Like, mm. at the time when content strategy was forming, I was looking very much, um, ironically, to get a full-time position somewhere. And I say okay. ironically because in the early 2010s, the only content strategy jobs were freelance. There are very few places you could go where someone was actually hiring in-house content strategy. In fact, there are very few agencies that were hiring content strategists to that point. This is a good question. So how do you, how do you promote yourself as a freelancer for, uh, for something that people don't know that they need yet? I mean, this was, this was the challenge of early accessibility artists. This was the, the challenge of early UX people, right? When before mm. UX was like the hot thing. Um, and you know, for me, it was slotting myself into things that weren't actually content strategy, like formally. Right. So I first, you know, gig in that area was online editor in chief was the title. Then I moved on to a role at a foundation where my title was something like um, communications, outreach, something, something. Right. But like you, yeah. you, you start with the terms people are familiar with. Yeah. And you morph it like I, I did have the advantage of being at companies where I was like the one person in the room who understood the Web. Yeah. So that allowed me to wear kind of whatever hat I wanted to and tell people this is what the web was about. <laughs> like if I, if I started getting really excited. Wait, 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 you know what the internet is about. Right. <laughs> or I can tell them that's what I believe, right? <laughs> and I can say, hey, if I start to get excited about user experience, I can say, oh no, this is the hot thing in the web right now is UX. You should yeah. be paying more attention to your users. You should be doing user research and they don't know okay. any better. So I can actually kind of steer that a little bit, right? The and a lot of my jobs were jobs where that title never existed before. I was the first person to have that role. So again, <laughs> that allowed me, it was, it was, to your point, kind of a lot of startup energy. It's just a startup within the confines of an existing organization because uh, they've never done this before. They've never had a role for this before. So I got to do a lot of just defining for myself what the role is, which I was pretty comfortable with, but not to the extent where I was like, oh, I'm gonna go freelance and you know, do my own taxes and get my own health insurance. 
I mean, you, it's, that's that's still not terribly put well. It's pretty damn miserable today. Uh, the 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 health insurance piece in particular. So okay, so so leaping forward a little bit, um, we get into content strategy. Um, you told me um, the piece about um, the storytelling and the filmmaking piece. Can you identify a point when we cross the line from? all of those threads into thinking about cognitive bias. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell me more about that? Sure. So I think when I really started to get respect for the brain, and I say respect in the sort of like fear and trembling awe kind of respect for the brain, is when I read a story in Oliver Sacks' book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which everyone should read. It is just fascinating. You will never think of the brain the same way again. Um, he tells a story about someone who had damage to their eyes, but only at kind of like the surface level. So their eyes literally could not take in light. But the optic nerve, the thing that sends information, interprets that light and sends information to the brain saying, this is what you're seeing, still worked. And so he believed he could still see. And you could ask him to describe mm. the room around him and he would describe it perfectly. But if you threw like a baseball, it'd be like... <laughs> yes, right. That to under to to realize that the brain is that good at fooling you, that the brain can create a completely convincing reality that isn't true. Suddenly, it's like, oh wait, what do I think is true that isn't true? Like, is that glass there? How do I verify that? Maybe I'll ask you. But wait, are you there? Right? Like, you start to get a respect for what you don't know. Which mm. I think is almost like my mission in life is to just get people to respect and get familiar with and comfortable with uncertainty. Mm. And not in a like, I can't do anything kind of way that just diminishes you, but in a way that almost like engages your curiosity, engages your skepticism, and sort of keeps you from doing things like going full MAGA, right? Or doing things like going full fascist or whatever. Yes. Like, the yes. sort of things that are that 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 derive from over certainty mm. or over essentialism, right? Like we're gonna get into heavy space here, but like I think that's yeah, yeah. that's part of the like that if you sort of want to talk about nerves getting struck. Yeah. And I don't think I knew this at the time, but this un this respect for the idea that you can't trust what you see, you can't trust what you hear. Mm. You have to allow for uncertainty, just scientifically. Like there's just, it isn't even like a philosophical thing to say, like, you never know what's going to happen. It's like, no, really, you never know what's, you don't even know what's happening right now. Like oh that my God, kind yeah. of, that, that, that's where my brain took that story. Mm. And I feel like, I don't know, for me anyway, it's a really positive direction to take because again, it's me. So we're just going to go <laughs> long-winded and philosophical with it. Please do. Um, By all means, I am here to just I, There's a great line in... Everything, everywhere, all at once. Which again, movie everyone needs to see. Oh, it was so where good. One of the characters says something along the lines of like, "When you don't know what's going on, you might as well be kind." Yes. And I'm like, yes, that. That's my mission. That's my 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 mission statement is to say, I first need to convince you that you don't know what's going on, and then I have to convince you that, given that, the only thing you can look to that you can be certain about are your values. Yes. Like, no matter what, whether that cup is there or not, I believe in compassion. Whether that cup is there or not, I believe in curiosity. Like, mm -hmm. the reality mm -hmm. 
perceived correctly or not, isn't going to change what I believe in in terms of values. And so I will take what I do have available to me and say, okay, well, how would a compassionate person act in this yeah. space? Whatever the space might be, right? <laughs> My best guess about this space is it's this. So what yeah. would a compassionate person do? Okay. Uh, I want to um, I, I apply at least some language that, that I learned, ironically, in seminary. Uh, so um, the language that they talk about, especially when you're, at, when you're participating in a, a thing like religion and spirituality, and potentially leadership that involves religion and spirituality, is the language of epistemological humility. Mm. And the Dunning-Kruger effect, like all, all of these things, like we don't know what we don't know. And also this, this sense that um, seems to have some overlap with what you're describing regardless of how sure we might be about something, about how whatever this beer is, is actually beer. I'm not sure it's actually beer, but like <laughs> it's something. But like there's still even the most infinitesimal possibility that we might think is small, that we're still at least partially, if not entirely, wrong. My experience working in, in lots of different communities that is that people don't like to be wrong. <laughs> I've had to practice at being less, less uncomfortably affected by being wrong. Um, I would dare to say that more than most, yeah, great discomfort at being wrong. Why do you think that that is, that people are uncomfortable with being wrong? So it's funny. Even, and this is just something that's kind of hitting me now, even the terminology being wrong, right? Now, it's you know not something that you're encountering, something that you're like having. It is something you are. It's ontological. Yes. It goes ah. from epistemological to ontological. Uh, I'm onto your games. Um, <laughs> I, I took philosophy of religion. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, John Hare, John Collins, and but, all um, of the, yeah. But yeah, like that language, I mean, that. I mean, we can do a fun language side gig here, but like Please. the way we talk about things is very impactful on how we think about them, right? So there's a great bit of um, research around how people uh, who speak different languages think about the future. Okay. So English is a very, what we call a very hard kind of future tense where it's like, I will go here, I will go there, I am here now. Um, Languages like Chinese and Japanese, if I'm understanding the research correctly, if you really transliterate, it comes into more like, instead of me saying, on Tuesday, I will go to the store, it's, on Tuesday, I am at the store. Uh. Think about that little tweak there. I am now identifying much more closely with future me at the store, because I am there on Tuesday, not I will be there on Tuesday. It's not as far away. It's break here. You're still future you, even though future yeah. you is in the future, now, and you're here now. Now, there's this uh, thing called hyperbolic discounting, which is basically a fancy word for how we don't like to think about our future selves, right? So I'm going to have that piece of chocolate cake to make present Dave happy, regardless of what it will do to future Dave's blood sugar. Mm. And that's future Dave's problem. It's, a, it's an inability or difficulty with relating to my future self. If I collapse that distance using language, all of a sudden you notice, hey, people who speak like language, languages like Chinese or Japanese that have this softer future tense, smoke less save more money, tend to, you know, stick to their health regimens. Like, it's sort of like all these sort of like things that oh. are future, that basically the only reason you do them is because you're going to get the reward later, not now. They just magically tend to be better at that. <laughs> so when we talk about things like I am wrong, right? 
That is a very mm, different yeah. thing than like I made a mistake or mm. I um, guessed wrong or basically anything that isn't like I personally am wrong, right? That's a whole different and and yeah, no one wants to actually physically be wrong. Like that's terrible. Make a mistake, okay? That's a little bit more comfortable, right? I created something that isn't great, but it isn't. I did, I'm not literally now wrong, right? It goes back to like fixed mindset. It's sort of like yes. you are this now. Yes, yes. Right. So that's part of the reason we don't like to be wrong, especially in America and most Western cultures, because being wrong comes at a price. We punish people mm. for being wrong, right? Um, I think about this a lot when I think about sort of like race relations, right? Yeah. Like, I think it is good that we call people out when they say hurtful things, but we don't have any follow-up after that. We don't have anything to say, okay, well, here's how we get to where you aren't saying those things or maybe where you have an understanding that will lead you on a journey that actually maps to how real life is in terms of learning about things like race. We just have, you are canceled or you are not. Mm. that's it. And so no one wants to be canceled. So no one says anything, right? That's a that's how bureaucracy works. So mm. I am interested in exploring spaces where it's like, well, like a space like restorative justice where it's like, okay, this isn't about you having some kind of transactional relationship with the state where you have committed this crime and therefore you must serve this much time. Now your time is up. Okay. You must be punished to this amount. You've been punished that amount. Okay. Now the transaction is over. Versus a, okay. a relationship that's okay. more like um, a health relationship, like, okay, you're not feeling well. What can we do to get you to where you are feeling well? Or a community situation where it's like, okay, here's how we're agreeing to function in the community. If something went wrong there that goes against the values of the community, we, the community, have to figure out how we're responsible. We have to figure out how you're responsible. We have to all figure out what we're willing mm. to do about this as a situation versus a, you are, you again, you are a criminal. The uh, end. Uh, I have defined you, therefore I know what to do with you. Mm, uh, we can go on for hours about uh, how capitalism perhaps makes that the more likely outcome. But uh, but the 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 piece of it, getting back to your question about why don't we like to be wrong, part of it is the very real consequences of being wrong in terms of like evolutionary psychology. It's like, that might be a tiger. And if I'm wrong and I say it's not a tiger, I'm going to get eaten. So you get this you get this over-representation of, like, danger. Like, I will see danger. Okay. The people who saw danger where there wasn't danger okay. lived longer, passed on their genes. So, yes, we are going to always kind of veer a little more into suspicion and conspiracy theory and, like, whatever makes us think it's a tiger. That'll always be our first guess. Okay. But we've gotten to a point now where it's not even about real danger anymore, right? It's more about... Mm. Um, What's going it's, to, it's, it's, it's more social, I think now. It's like, what's going to happen to me? How will people look at me if I, if I'm wrong or if I say, I don't know, you can learn a lot about a company by finding out what happens when you ask, I don't know in a meeting. And some companies will be like, like scoff and get a little bit, you don't know, like, what are you doing here? And other companies will be like either, oh, well, let me tell you what this is. Or, you know what? I don't know either. Let's figure it out. Right. Mm. And again, growth mindset versus not, but like the social consequences of again being wrong, yeah. right, are so high that people don't want to try. People don't want to be wrong. Like they would rather express certainty, even if they have no idea. And you see this in tech. All like ninety percent of tech is expressing certainty when you don't have certainty. And yes, absolutely, in the startup world, that's how you get venture capital. 
Wait, I'm just gonna say it. George, you're, George, you're shaking your head. Did you have a? But yeah, like that. That is that. That is how we. That that is a survival tactic. Yeah. Is to always appear right. Interesting. I'm trying to figure out how to repackage this language to mm -hmm. to take away the ontological component of being <laughs> right and wrong. Yeah, it's tough, right? <laughs> so even. So, even if your data is not correct, even if what you, even if you, even if your knowledge is not accurate, it is still better to practice behaviors. It it, in scare quotes, it's still better to practice behaviors as if your data is correct. I think is what I think is what I hear you you yeah, saying. Yeah, and and to and again to pretend that there isn't uncertainty, right? Like we've we've sort of like fall into this world where and i i think there's also like a hyper masculine component to this fit um where we we lead with certainty and we're drawn to certainty uh -huh. um there are even certain hand motions we're doing one right now like i think that in order for america sort of to be like great we need to you know right like this this, this, is, this, is, a, this is a thing like this is a speech coaches will tell you right this not open hand like but all of it is to project confidence my fellow americans yeah yeah. Um, so, so yeah, we've 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 fallen into the thing where like we like we're drawn to certainty, we're drawn to confidence, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's like the degree to which we value it, right? And the degree to which we're not willing to question it, or the degree to which we don't value uncertainty. Like I want the presidential candidate who's going to go up there and be like, I have no fucking clue how we're going to deal with COVID. Mm. And I'll tell you something else: none of these bozos do either. Like we are doing our best. Here's what I think we should do, and here's what values, and here's who, here's who we're gonna look out for. Yeah. When we're doing that, right? But I have no clue. We're gonna do. I don't. I don't think we're doing about inflation. By the way, president, even when I'm president, there's not a hell of a lot I can do about inflation. Just tell. Like. Yeah. Now that's me. But there's a lot of people out there who are like, if they saw that, they'd be like, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't want him leading. He doesn't know how to fly the plane. I don't want him flying the plane. Okay. So. There might be a better way of doing things if we can, if we can separate personal identity from rightness or wrongness. Yeah, and we can we can isolate those things into our choices that we that we make. Um, but how long? How far do we go? Like how how far do we go until what? I, I guess the the adage one hears in in like drama films, like we are our choices. We are the we are the the actions we take, we are our, our patterns of behavior. Like, is where is the where is the line? The line for what? I don't know. Like, <laughs> one of the things that, at least, because I, I've I've been to a lot of retirement speeches and people being given like emeriti chairs for whatever good work that they've done, uh, is they talk about well, this person is a good person because they've done X, Y, Z, and and A. And all of those choices were demonstrating like a pattern of behavior that makes them good. See, this is this is where essentialism comes in, and I don't like it. So let me tell you what I learned in therapy. Please. Uh, 2019, I have this like breakdown where it sort of like becomes clear, like something bad happened at work, and my reaction to it was appropriate in that I was sad about it, but maybe a sure. little too sad about it. And my wife, who's very smart, kind of keyed in on what was probably an overreaction to it and said, maybe okay. we go to the general practitioner, which you can do, by the way. That is one way to get diagnosed. It's just your general practitioner can look at some signs. And it was like, oh yeah. So there's like a checklist. And it was okay. like, 
yep, 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 yep. Not that one. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> it's like, okay, uh, you might be um, suffering from depression. Um, so got on the meds, got on the therapy. And one of the things that just was absolutely crystal clear from therapy was you can, if you choose, live your life as a sort of constant trial. As And, and the, the, the verdict being, are you a good person or not? And that's what I was doing. Literally every interaction was sort of like, okay, based on this interaction right now, we're going to find out if I'm a good person or a bad person. And later I can reflect and be like, oh, you're a bad person. Look, 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 look how angry that person is. You're a bad person, right? And one, that means you're outsourcing your value to others, which is never a good idea. And frankly, not what they, any of them really signed on for. Um, you're not paying them nearly enough for that job. Um, and, and two, um, it's, you're, you're proceeding from a false premise. So one, one approach is to say, okay, I'm just, everything's going to be about, am I a good or a bad person, which is just so stressful. The other, another approach that we arrived at was this idea of, well, let's just, let's just write down what your values are. Like, what do you believe? Right. What do you, and there's literally a list <laughs> you pull from. And yeah, they're like, sure. pick six of these. Sure. And sure. I'm like, okay, pick six. And this thing's like, uh, and I literally have them in a Trello. I could show them to you right now. Um, but it's things like compassion, curiosity, creativity. Sure. I'm like, okay, now instead of asking, am I a good or a bad person? Ask yourself, are you moving closer or further away from curiosity? Are you moving closer or further away from creativity? Yeah. Or if you're reflecting on that discussion you had, were you engaging in compassion to a okay. degree that you're, that you like, could you engage more next time? Right. Mm. But it becomes about proximity to values and not this sort of linear, linear, you are or a bad person, you're not. Mm. And so this whole thing about, oh, here are all these different behaviors, rather than say, we're gonna take these inputs to determine if you're a good or a bad person, right? We're gonna weigh the scale of justice, right? Instead, we're gonna say, okay, we're gonna take those behaviors and we're going to plot them against what you believe in. Some of those behaviors, really, really close. Some of those behaviors, not so close. And it becomes this ongoing conversation as opposed to a final judgment you are a good person or you are a bad person, which, by the way, not sure what you're going to do with that information anyway. <laughs> right? It's like, even if it's sort of like, oh, you're a good person, you're not going to get a cookie. There's no, <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> even if, exactly, I, well, I hear you say, even if you are a good person, what does that mean? Yeah, there's no, there's no like, there's no board that's going to be like, okay, here's your reward. You're a good person. Great. You, you, you now never have to do anything again. Yeah. No. <laughs> or you're a bad person. Um, I'm not going to jail now. And, and frankly, if I did go to jail, it would have very little to do with whether or not I was a good person, <laughs> right? And so it's sort of like, once you realize, again, this, is go back, this goes back to the, you don't know anything of the uncertainty, but it's a sort of like, once yep. you realize how much uncertainty there is in the water and how impossible it actually would be, even if there is such a thing as a good or a bad person, how impossible it would be to actually arrive at a correct, right, uh, uh, evaluation of that, you start to get way more comfortable day of, okay, I can't tell you if I'm a good or a bad person, but I can tell you how close or far away I am from compassion right now or where I think compassion, uh, like think of it. Um, there's a phrase compasses, not maps. Like yeah. where's the compassion North star on this one? Right. Or where's the curiosity? Like, am I acting in a curious fashion now? I can answer that a lot better than am I a good or a bad person? I, I, I imagine that this is, this is a mindset that had to be cultivated. What was that process of cultivation? Like, well, I'm not going to say the drugs didn't work, right? <laughs> like, there was literally a part of my brain that was leaning into, give me anything and I will turn it into a reason to hate yourself. 
right? There was a yeah. mechanism yeah. that was just yeah. sort of like yeah. looking for it. So there's there's a piece of cultivating a habit on recognizing that. Yeah. Um, I cannot underestimate the role of meditation in this. So I started doing meditation around the same time, specifically mindfulness meditation, which again is sort of about stepping back and saying, let's not just jump to conclusions here. If mindfulness meditation is very much like sitting in a bus station and seeing the buses go by, except they're not buses, they're your thoughts. And you're sort of recognizing, that's a bus. That's a bus. Usually we're on the bus. And, or when the bus shows up, we're like, oh, I need to get on that. And we're just on it. And now we're thinking about this conversation we had two years ago and how we could have done it better. Right? Yeah. When yeah. you actually just sit in the bus station, watch it go by, you're like, oh, yeah. That, was a, that's a, that bus is about that conversation. And I'm just going to sit here. Oh, it left. Wait, it could do that? This was one of the most like interesting moments in my mindfulness meditation practice was realizing, oh, thoughts go away if you don't do anything about them. And I felt so cheated. I felt like, oh my God, you're telling me I didn't have to attend to that thought. I didn't have to wake up at 2 a.m. and not be able to go back to sleep because that thought that showed up, I thought it was like red light flashing. Oh my God, you must steal this now. If, if I had just not engaged with it, it would have just been like, oh, okay, and just left. Seriously? <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's just sort of like, oh my God, like what have I been doing this whole time? Yeah. So, so that, that piece of it as well, yeah. when it suddenly becomes about this, oh my God, am I good or a bad person? Uh, let me just see what happens to this thought. Yeah, I thought so. You just left. You just left. You, you weren't serious. You didn't care whether I engaged with you or not. Fine. Like what do I actually want to engage with now? You know? <laughs> right. So you figured out when... When a thought is floating by, when you don't need to get on the bus, and when you do, when you do need to catch the bus, is it a process of, of evaluating like which buses you need to catch? If we're staying it's, in the metaphor, it's, it's almost the like it's almost more like there is a piece of it that's almost like gut reaction of like it's it's more like this. I think my whole life I've cultivated some degree of just like being in touch with my gut, for lack of a better word. And I think as I was growing up, and we haven't even touched on this piece. But as I was growing up, I was an evangelical Christian. And so I very much cultivated this notion of being in relationship with God and with Jesus. And so I'm, I'm sorry, to, I'll drink to that. Yeah, yeah, And And, and God and all that Notice stuff. Notice we're, pro we're, we're proper ex-evangelicals <laughs> because we're drinking water. <laughs> but what I preserved, so I kind of dumped the whole gays are going to hell part of evangelicalism. Great. <laughs> and women shouldn't have control of their bodies part. I kind of shedded that over time, which is a whole other process. Sure. Um, but I kept the part that was like about love <laughs> and giving things to people without making them qualify for them. You know, that part, I was like, yeah, I'm on board with this. Hey. Um, and, uh, but, but along with that was this, the particular strand was in, it was very much about this personal relationship with God, right? So it isn't like the Catholic church where it's like, here are all these intermediaries in this bureaucracy that you maintain a good relationship with God. It was like, no, you just talk to God and you just, He'll talk to you and you'll just have this. Call him up on the phone and yeah. be like, the Ramona, or the, the Beverly Cleary book, hey, hey guys, yeah. me, Polly. Yeah, new prayer, who dis, you know. Um, <laughs> and that, I still don't know what to call it. I still call it a relationship with God. You can call it a relationship. I don't really care what you call it, but I call it a relationship. But there's the sense sure. of like, I feel like what I need to focus right now on is this. And that would come into, still does, would come into conflict with, yeah, but I really should do this. And... Where the should is one of those buses going by. That's a sort of like either a fear of what someone thinks will think of me if I don't do this right now. Versus 
trust that mm, I really think I can't see why I really think, think that this needs to happen now and I'm not going to do that now. Or like this line in an email where you're like, oh, I really should add that line, except I don't really think I should. But the, the bus is like, yeah, this is what, what you do. Like that, that notion of what you feel you should, what you, what you feel other pe people think you should do versus what in your heart, you kind of just, you have this gut that like, yeah, eh, what, you, what your instinct not this tells time. you. I don't yeah. need to do that. Like I'll give you a perfect example. There's a conference that I've spoken at before. It's a perfectly good conference. Um, and they put out a call for, um, for proposals to speak at the conference. Great. And part of it was like, okay, well, this is what I do. This is my living now. I go out and I give these talks and it's not even yeah. whether I'm going to get paid. It's like, okay, I probably won't, but I will, you know, um, get this exposure, blah, 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 blah. Sure. And it's just like, that is what is expected of me. But when I really search my heart about it, I'm like, I don't, I just don't want to know. Like, I don't feel like this is a good use of my time. And the kinds of things I'm focusing on now are in person and paid yeah. and like all these other yeah. things or these, or they have these better developed relationships. So it's sort of like the hotel coffee because... is probably awful. <laughs> But it's, it's one of those, like, just because it's easy and expected doesn't mean it's right for you right now. And I think and I think there's a connection there, honestly. Like, the easy and the expected, it's a pattern. Yeah. Like, most of those buses are patterns. They're, they're, bus ends up being a good metaphor because they're on a schedule. <laughs> like, there's certain yep. thoughts you're going to have about yourself where you can almost, like, set your clock to it's like, oh, here comes the self-doubt. Oh, oh. <laughs> here, here comes the, am I really a good husband, though? Right here comes the. Am I being a good parent? Yep, right on the. the I'm not being a good, good parent. The two fifteen. I'm not being a good parent. Right on time. And then you know? for one day, it's like a half an hour late, and you're like, "Where is it coming? Like, I hope nothing <laughs> bad has happened to myself." Down. Exactly. <laughs> is my self doubt okay? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so to answer your question, it's more rather than saying like which buses do I tune in, it's more like saying. There's kind of like, I don't know, a train, a motorboat, some other form of transportation that I kind of know to tune into. And it's more not letting the buses be like, no, 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 get off the motorboat, get on the bus to just torture that metaphor as far as possible. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll put a pin in it later. We'll, we'll put it back in the B schedule. Um, <laughs> I want to pivot a little bit. You brought this wonderful little zine with you. And one of the things that I learned in that, friend of the show Tarek Davis um told me as well that, that you have in common with him is that you are a fan of, of horror film and specifically um black horror film mm -hmm. uh, I would love to know what it is about this segment of the horror film industry is so fascinating yeah to you so, uh, and, and yes, I'll absolutely pitch my own movie while we're doing this, but, um, Please, by so all I'm, I'm going to loop circle back to this cause I want to answer the, the, the question first, but, um, in the course of working on a horror film that I'm working on now, I became a horror fan. I was sort of like tangentially like, yeah, there are a couple of good horror films out there. Actually yep. just cinema classic, the thing, cinema classic, blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't something I really got into the way I get into like action. Now I am a full on horror fan. It's my second favorite genre behind action. Um, but the thing about black horror, and right now I'm going to recommend a movie called Horror Noir. Um, I think it's on Shudder right now, but it's this fantastic documentary about black horror films. Shudder, the, 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 the streaming yeah, service. Yeah, the streaming for, service, yeah. For horror films, um, yeah. And what I love about it is the experience of being black in America, specifically the experience of encountering racism and white supremacy as a black person in America for me, and I think for a lot of people, um, is very much... If I, if I had to pick a genre for it, it would be horror. 
because horror is very much about the inevitable. When something is coming for you and you can stop it, you can outwit it, you can beat it up, that's action. That's a thriller. When something is coming for you and it is, and you know in your heart it is going to win, that's horror, right? And I think about like there's a there's a TV show called Lovecraft Country. Yep. And yep. the very first episode. Yep. Uh, you have a character who is trying to drive out of a sundown town. A sundown town was a town where if you were black and you were still there after sundown, they would kill you. Yep. Straight up. And he realizes he's in a sundown town and the sun is going down and he's trying to drive away and there's a cop car behind him and the car starts running out of gas. Now this isn't, the pilot episode of Lovecraft Country includes Lovecraftian monsters that are horrifying, mm -hmm. right? Straight up nightmare fuel. But the scariest scene in that show is trying to get to that county line before the sun goes down. It is terrifying. And what that show understands is that the appropriate genre for racism is horror. Right? And I think that's why black horror is especially interesting to me. Because it's able to, instead of saying, I'm going to have to invent ghosts and haunted houses and vampires and ghouls and goblins, I don't have to invent anything. anything. I can tweak reality just a little to illustrate for those who might not have experienced this what it's like. Right? But I don't have to have to tweak it that much. Right? That, to me, is what is fascinating about uh, black horror. And, and that, and this is something I bring up in, in my movie, which I'll tell you about in a sec, that there are some experiences that if they happen to white people, and I put them in a movie, um, let's talk about just, like, the experience of a slave a person being enslaved in Africa on their way to the boat, and then once they get off the boat, just one of the things that will happen is they will be branded. Literally branded, right? Because yes. that's what you do to cattle. Right? Yep. Now, if I were to have a scene in a movie where a white person gets captured by someone, right, in some backwater town or something, and then they pull out the brand and they brand them, they'll be like, oh my god, this is like such a scary horror movie. It's like torture porn, right? Yeah. So what happens to a white person, it's horror. What happens to a black person, it's history. That is why black horror is so fascinating to me. Right? Um, but the, the movie that I've been hinting at is a movie that is based on a true story. Um, Washington Square Park has enslaved people buried underneath it. We're specifically talking about Philadelphia. Yeah. Like one Washington of the, Square Park in Philadelphia. One of the primary yeah. like public squares yeah. in a fairly affluent neighborhood. Oh, yeah, well, it's, a, okay. A very affluent neighborhood. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like I, I can't afford a condo there. Like 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 <laughs> Connecticut affluent yeah. like portion of town. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's like yeah, yeah. if if you, uh, you a million will buy you a kitchen in, in that part of town. Um <laughs> but there's under the ground there, right? So all this and when I first moved to Philly I found this out. And my first thought was, hey, wouldn't it be funny if, like, they all came back to life one night as zombies and they only ate white people? And I called that movie White Meat. I've finished. <laughs> I've, I've finished the screenplay. Yeah. I'm working on, like, revising it now, doing a table read, getting funding, and actually this is one of those hell or high water I'm going to make this. But in the process of learning that and in the process of understanding, 
this movie can be about more than just, oh, it's a funny premise for like a Keen Peel skit. It's like, no, there's actually a lot of meat here. There's a lot of anti-slavery history here in Philadelphia. There's yes. a lot of slavery history and all that. Like, there's a lot going on. Yes. Oof. Um I'm taking I'm taking a moment to to be affected by that. Um because that's such a that's a such a powerful conversation to be had to to take a city and I'm 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 now thinking about the the history of of race relations and just just white black race relations like not like discounting like the impact on um undocumented immigrants oh yeah um, like more more recently with with the ice office up, up on market street um thinking about um some of the some of the east asian and southeast asian immigrants as well but i'm thinking about the the very uh checkered history of of race relation of white and black race rate relations in Philly and and I hear that and just all of the stories that that need to be told even in the neighborhood where we're sitting now where at the time of taping the the last remaining real estate holdings of the black bottom community are actively being eradicated um What sort of practical steps, conversations need to be had in order for more of these stories to be told? Funding. Like, honestly, increasingly when people talk about, like, what do we do about race? I increasingly just jump to just give people, just, just give black people money. Like, seriously, to just start. go to skip to UBI, just skip to, like, okay, here's your choice. Like, the, and again, this is like my, my Thomas Paine, you know, uh, only, semi only semi-joking answer to the question of, like, reparations. Like, okay, you got a choice. Sure. You can either give us all a whole bunch of money or uh, give us 10 times the vote. One will cost you nothing, but have a very big impact, uh, and the other will cost you quite a bit of money. And that's nothing to say what you're going to indigenous people once that's over. <laughs> yes right it's sort of like pay one way or the other but pay like seriously so many of these things it's like we can have this we should and will and need to have this like more nuanced conversation about race but while we're having that conversation about race people are dying it's like can't we just give me the money yes. and, and give give black people the money first and then have the conversation because that's where this is going anyway if we have this amazing conversation about race and we realize oh my god um, everybody else got to play 10 rounds of Monopoly before we even put, let you put a piece on the board. We owe you a lot if we're going to actually agree that this is a just country. Okay, here's the money. Okay, that conversation takes 20 years. Yeah. Versus, oh my God, just sheer. Sheer is just an extra thousand a month. I don't know if you've seen some of the experiments in UBI. They gave yes. black mothers in New York, I think it was like a thousand, maybe 1,500 a month, which is, it's New York, not nearly enough to live on. Right. Yeah. That'll buy. What, what that, was it? It'll buy you buy you a latte and a bagel. Right. Like so that the group that that got that money, and this is just one of the there are many many positive outcomes, but the one that I always like to bring up because it puts the lie to like the lazy black person is the folks who got that money were twice as likely to find a job. If you even want to get a job, you need money. That's the thing they don't tell you. Right. What did James Baldwin say? Being poor is expensive. So at least get us to the point where we can afford to be poor. 
How about just that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Where I don't have to choose between medicine and rent. Just let's just let's just get that far. But honestly, like that, I, I it's and it's not new because it's a legit question. I agree, it's a legit question. But I get really impatient with the like, what kind of conversation about race should we have? It's like I don't care. Give every black person <laughs> this much money on a regular basis for the next ten years, then we can talk about the kind of. Because here's the other thing. I suspect that if we actually went with reparations first and then had the conversation, the conversation would go a lot better because that would be a conversation with people. Unfortunately, in this country, we respect people who have money more than we do people who do not. So if I say, hey, I'm going to have a conversation with you, black person who is statistically likely to make one third what I make, um, it's not going to be on equal footing. Like go back to bias. Somewhere in the back of my head, I'm thinking you're a little bit less than I am. I would never say that out loud. And if you ask me, like, point blank, do I believe that? I'd say, no, of course, this person's somewhere in the back of my head because I've been raised in a world that respects rich people more than white people, or more than, more than, that'd be funny. It reflects rich people more than black people. Yeah. See, this that is what reparations would get you. That Freudian slip, respecting yeah. rich people more than white people. Yeah. But. See, that that would be interesting, right? <laughs> there's the there's, don't a, associate there's the two, another right? good horror film. Yeah, exactly. You, you, just, you just pitched two films today. <laughs> right? But I think that, I think that it's that thing where like people won't take your advice if they don't pay you for it. I don't think, mm. I don't think that conversation would go nearly as well if both sides were, had less of a gap between how much money they were making. Because it, that's terrible, and that's just the state of America after 200, 300 years of capitalism. That's what, that's what you're going to get, is I respect you more if you have money. I just do. And if I'm having a conversation with Black America, and Black America is one-third of what white America has, there's not going to be a lot of respect in that conversation. The thing that you're pointing out that, that I, I think is the struggle, that as, as all of these high-level conversations are happening... Um, is that there's a there's a need for the pragmatic concern that people do people are suffering who do not need to be suffering right now mm -hmm. and there's a need to entertain that conversation at the same time that we entertain the conversations around the high concept component how do we have those conversations together at the same time yeah i think that it's tricky right cuz like as yeah. much as i advocate for just radical change right if it's too radical, you get uh, Ethiopia, right? So yes. Ethiopia right now, yeah. Yeah. guy comes in and tries to put in some pretty hardcore changes. And on the one hand, some of these things are so nice that he get, wins the Nobel Peace Prize. But as soon as there's pretty harsh pushback to that, right? And Tigray's like, hey, guess what? We used to be in charge. We don't like this. We're going to take over this part of land. Yeah. The default position is genocide, Right. Like, you get a situation, not even to, like... So, my dad is Ethiopian, so I'm paying a lot more attention to this than most Americans right now. Yeah. But, um... But, and this is not the first time this has happened. Where change happens at such a pace where... Correct. The people who used to be in power, or maybe kind of still are, get pissed and decide, I choose violence. And in some cases, the reaction to that is even more violence. So, you have, um... The African Union now is going to try to host talks between them. And I do not envy that position because you have basically two sides who are actively committing genocide <laughs> like and it's just like I, I don't even know where to begin with that but that but there is a lesson in there around how do you make radical change um all i can say is when i've seen it work 
it is in situation, and I hate to admit this. It's not even admit this. This is just what's right. And it's not to say the only thing that works, but where I've seen it work, there has been actually a very strong, unfortunately, military component. What I mean by that is Reconstruction. Reconstruction was a moment in America where you get three amendments that basically change the face of the Constitution, change the face. Like, we didn't even really have an identification of what a citizen even was prior to those amendments. And these were just, I, I didn't even understand just how sh earth-shattering Reconstruction was. Reconstruction, which people talk about systemic change today, and they talk about, hey, we need, we don't, we, the, all this other stuff you're doing is window dressing. We need fundamental systemic change. That's what Reconstruction was. And if Reconstruction had continued... And Lincoln hadn't have been killed, and the person who took his job hadn't have been like full-on slave owner, right? <laughs> like, and yeah. Andrew Stanton hadn't have been eventually pushed out. You would have seen, I believe, because that that was a time when you had all of a sudden you went from like zero to sixty in terms of black governors and black congresspeople and black landowners, right? The whole forty years and mule thing I recently learned that never actually got instituted because Lincoln died before they could institute it, so they literally took it off the books. Um, I mean, it's even like it's really relevant. We're talking about land yes. as an issue that alone um, is sort of tells you the story of race in America. Um, but yeah, if and then the other examples I can think, of, but that was part of what made Reconstruction work was troops on the ground in the South. The reason the Klan couldn't just show up and start burning down houses is because there were Union soldiers on every block. And the same thing, the other places I look to are post World War II Germany and Japan. These are places where there were still Nazis in Germany. There are still people who wanted the empire in Japan, but without a presence on the ground, literally reconstructing from the ground up, you don't get to a point where you have a very different perspective on, because I, I just got back from Berlin. That is a, that is a city that is acknowledges its past. Yeah. Reckons with it constantly. Cause they don't just have to deal with world war two. They got to deal with the wall. Right. Right. But that, ability and it goes back to the thing about uncertainty that ability to not just be certain about we are germany we are good yeah we are the south we are good right being able to grapple with that complexity and be like we're good and we're bad or we're not a good or bad we're not a good country or a bad country we're a country that is these values and we're going to move as close to them as we can get to that conversation going from full-on fascist to we're actually going to live in a complex just or attempt to be a just society i have only seen that so far like my limited research come from we're basically military occupations. Where there is... With a plan, with a very clear plan, because there's lots of military occupations that do not end in that. <laughs> Most of them, in fact, but yeah. To, to where there is authority backing the intention behind... Yes, there, and, and, that, and that I think is an important piece of it. I just finished a book called How to Stop Fascism, and one of the key things you <laughs> see... <laughs> yeah, this, this is what I do in my free time, folks. I'm not, I'm not a very happy man. Um, um, one of the key factors that you need before fascism can really get a foothold is the failure of institutions, right? So if you look at Germany, if you look at Spain, if you look at Italy leading into World War II, the institutions were failing, absolutely, and they were so corrupt, right? It was really easy then to say that the established order doesn't work, we need to burn it all down and go with this thing instead that harkens back to an earlier time when everything was wonderful. Um, which is, by the way, you want to be really careful when you use terms like, let's burn it all down. It's like, I get where you're coming from, but that's kind of exactly what fascists want. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, um, that failure of institutions is kind of a key ingredient. So having an authority that is sort of like, 
there's a great story about when um, we invaded Iraq and the first few months. There's a great documentary called No One in Sight. It's by, I think, Craig Ferguson. And it, not, yeah. And it, um, it doesn't take the position. It's about the first, like, few years of the invasion of Iraq. It does not, in fact, try to take a position on should we have gone in or not. It kind of, like, lets that stay neutral. Instead, it focuses on in, if we're going in, how should we have gone in? And what really becomes clear is there was barely a plan. So I talked about Germany and, and, and Japan. That was being planned for two years. We didn't even know if we were going to win the war, but we were already planning very intricately for that. I, Iraq was like three months, maybe. Right. And then they right. didn't even follow the plan. And there's right. a great moment where they talk about uh, very early in the war, there is the um, museum in Iraq with all the antiquities, and it gets looted. And the troops on the ground do nothing. And people are like, that, that was the moment when we knew this, this wasn't going to work. Because to your point, the authority was saying, hey, it's, it's a free-for-all. Yeah. Do what you want. Have we squandered the opportunity presented to us from COVID for reconstruction? We, yeah, uh, COVID isn't over. So we're, we got a lot more COVID to get through. We got a lot more, more opportunity. I'll rephrase. <laughs> um, have we squandered the opportunity presented from the earlier phases of lockdowns? Oh, war, we don't even like, that's one of the things, like, a, a change as massive as COVID. We're not going to feel the fall. He's talking about long COVID. Let's, let's talk about long social COVID. Sure. Or long so, political COVID. Sure. We're not going to feel the fall of that. Like, you know how now we're really just starting to reckon with the 2008 financial crisis? Like, really starting to see how that laid the groundwork for things like MAGA, for things like the rise of fascism, for things like questioning democracy. And January 6th, not many chess moves from 2008 financial crisis to January 6th. Like, maybe three. Oops, right? But in 2008, nobody was saying, well, you know what's going to happen in 10 years. They're going to storm the cattle, clearly. It's like, no, this thing was so big and so encompassing. So, yeah, I feel that way about, like, COVID. Like, we're, we're, we have no idea, like, where this is going. Now, we certainly see the things that are opened up. That's, that's another thing. It's like, I used to be a futurist. I used to love to be, like, give talks that are like, the future of content or whatever, you know. And then 2020 happened, and I'm like, oh, Futurism is adorable. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is just adorable that you think you know what's going to happen in ten years, right? It's yeah. adorable. You think you know what's going to happen next yeah. week. That is good for you. Never lose the stars in your eyes. <laughs> um, so now I think, in terms of okay, here's what's on the ground. What do I want to happen? What is the kind outcome? What is the compassion outcome? And then what what can I do? What role can I play to nudge the future in that direction? knowing I have zero control over what actually happens because there are maybe 7 billion factors at play. <laughs> I think it's somewhere around 7.2 or yeah, 3 7. At, yeah, at this yeah. point. Something like but that, yeah. yeah. Not, not counting the weather. <laughs> <laughs> I want to push us forward a little bit. Um, um, the second big question of this podcast is um, what you look to when, as times are, at, when times are difficult, what are the sorts of things, people, places, and ideas that help keep spirits high enough to function? Yeah, I've gotten very much into um, a practice where I try to understand, like, what my body is telling me about my emotions 
And what's the difference between like this is upsetting, but I can keep going and check email to this is upsetting and I need to I need I need a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like you were saying before, it's like I need to take a break and absorb what I just heard there. Yeah. Like, and I will play music, I'll do whatever it is, but and I, I will keep checking in until my body tells me. What are your desert island discs? Oh, I don't. I can tell you what my favorite songs are, but it's like this like playlist I haven't updated in twenty years, so it's probably out of date. But traditionally, my favorite songs have been Forty by U Two. Oof. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Half a World Away by REM and yeah. the Rain Song by Led Zeppelin. But like, yeah. those are a bunch of old white dudes. I don't know how about I feel now. There's probably going to be some Run the Jewels in there now and some yeah. Kendrick mm-hmm. or some Lizzo. Yeah. Um, so I haven't updated that list. In She's a while, incredible. She runs. But um, I would I would almost rather go with like Desert Island performances. So like okay. seeing Prince at what was the what? But is now the Wachovia? Yeah, I forgot. The, the, I forget what it was. It was downtown. The saw. So, so seeing Prince perform. That's one of those things. Seeing the very first Zoo TV show, very, the very first concert I went to Zoo TV U2, that would definitely be in there. Um, seeing one of R.E.M.'s last shows, that would definitely be in there. Um, those are sort of like life-changing kind of, you know, it's like, I have seen God, you know. There, there's, well, there, well, exactly as you say, there's something, there's something about those moments that as soon as you have them, you know, this is one of those moments. Yeah. This is one of those life-defining moments experiences that i'm going to remember yeah yeah i want to make sure that we that we leave a little bit of time uh, for for questions and conversation from our, our people gathered and i would like to invite we have a we have a few minutes yeah um, and i've 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 promised that uh whoever asks the first question gets a copy of my book so doesn't asking the question affect the odyssey or can does say that again does asking the question affect the artist? Absolutely. Uh, framing effect is one of the most, I should say how you ask the question will affect it. Uh, framing effect is one of the most powerful biases in the world. I would say one of the most dangerous. So the example I always give is if you walk into a store and you see a sign that says um, beef, 95% uh, lean, and next to it is a sign that says beef, 5% fat, which one do you think people are going to light up for? Literally the same thing. So I said to you, hey, would you like beef that's 95% lean? Or if I said, hey, would you like beef that's 5% fat? Like that's going to, how I ask it will affect your answer. And framing of questions is one of the most important, to get back to your question about like, how do we have these conversations? Framing, the framing question used for that conversation is critical. There's a group in DC called the Convergence Center for Public Policy. And their job is to get people from opposite sides of the table to come together. So if the issue was food deserts, right? you might think the question to ask would be something like, how do we get healthier food into the supermarket? Yeah. But there are a lot of assumptions baked into that question. And some people would not want to engage with that that you want at the table. The question they came up with was, how can we shift, consu- how, might, how can we work together to shift consumer demand to healthier consumption? Now, you see what they did there, right? Shifts consumer demand. If my main interest in food is money and I hear the term shift consumer demand, I went in on that because you're talking about a space that no one else is in on yet. I can get on the ground floor. If uh, healthier consumption, right? If I live in the community, advocate for the community, I went in on that because I want my people eating healthy. Anyone who needs to be at the table can see themselves in the question. And even the phrasing, how can we work together? You can't answer the question without also describing working together. So that is a very carefully crafted question to elicit and actually invite, right? It's, It's designed to be inviting. Right. So absolutely how you ask the question will absolutely affect the answer, which is why we have to be so thoughtful about how we craft those questions. And here's your book. Enjoy. (laughs) 
Yeah, so I just wanted to circle back on the idea you brought up about um, values and how um, it's important to use those to drive uh, decisions and just see if you as a person or potentially collectively as a society, you're heading towards the values you say are most important. But I think the question I wanted to ask is instead of framing that as good or bad, which you pointed out how that often falls short, how can we actually collectively do that? And how do we establish accountability for ensuring that the values we claim to espouse either as individuals or as a society as a whole are actually met? That is an excellent question. So I think wow. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot. Of, so the short answer is I have no idea, but I know people have figured it out in the past. That's the short answer. So I think a lot about defund the police i think a lot about abolish the police abolish prisons and i would love to create or fund the creation of like a procedural that takes place in a world that doesn't have prisons that doesn't have the police just so we can even get our heads around what does that even look like because on the one hand i'm like okay that means that i can walk around a park at night and not have to worry about some cop pulling up and being like what are you doing here but it also means if like i don't know some guy starts banging down my door with a shotgun i, I have no one to call i just have to run that's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know anyone who has a gun who can suddenly show up and fight the guy with the gun. Or if there's a school shooting or if there's a like you know, there's any number of scenarios where I'm like, I, I don't actually know who to call if that's not me. So that part of the puzzle, I haven't totally sorted out yet. And, or, or in terms of abolishing prison, it's sort of like, no, 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 no. I want Harvey, I, I want Harvey Weinstein in jail. No, I want, I want Bill Cosby in jail. Fuck it. Yeah, go. I, but just for them. Not for like 50 people who smoke pot, just them. <laughs> like five people in that jail, like, and then run good, right? So I haven't totally gotten my head around the rest of that sentence. Like abolish police and then da 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 da, right? The reason I say I believe it can be done, again, going back to indigenous ways, indigenous folks didn't have a lot. I will say, when I say indigenous folks, I mean some, right? Because there were indigenous folks who had slaves. Um, there were many groups of indigenous peoples who did not have police, did not have prisons. Um, there's a group right now in Churro, I think it's called, Mexico, a group of indigenous women uh, back in 2011 uh, kicked out the cartels, kicked out the police, kicked out the politicians, kicked out the corporations. Um, and I don't, don't want to pretend it was all peaceful. Like, they've got people with guns at the borders of the town right now being like, do I know you? Um but they run a successful town that's been for 10 years now doing great and actually helping farm out equitable farming to other populations in an area. And it's sort of like a, a recognized separate state according to Mexico government. So I know it can be done. I know that there are cultures in history that have done it who have done it for longer than there have actually been police. Um, but how? That's, that's, that is research I am still doing. Women were a big part of the cartel? Oh yeah, it was indigenous women. Like fundamentally, and they even said, uh, one follow-up article was saying, they've tried this in other towns, but the mistake they made was they didn't put women on the councils. That actually, I think, would be a very interesting first step. Rather than solve for, let's not have prisons or police, solve for, again, do the solution for, solve for, just put women in all positions of government for the next five years, and just see what happens with that alone. You might see that all those other problems suddenly aren't as big problem. Just saying. 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna move to our last question as as many as I could ask. <laughs> we'll, um, we'll, we'll do part two later. It'll be fun. <laughs> yes, um, and, and that will that's a little bit in, in the the arena of impact. You might have answered a little bit already, but but the last question that I typically ask everyone who joins my show is, what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? Oof. I want I want a world where people are kind. I want a world where the first impulse, the first best impulse is to be kind, right? So when we're looking at a policy, when we're passing someone on the street, the result isn't always going to be kind. There's going to be mitigating factors, and sometimes it's going to be like, I would love to do this, but I'm, I'm just not able to right now or just something else. But I want the first impulse, right, to be, I want to help you. I want to understand you. And I think you can point to, I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you a perfect example of what I think that world looks like. So there is a group of uh, first peoples called the Sikh Sika. Um, Maslow encountered them when he was studying his um, hierarchy of needs. And Maslow talks about this notion of self-actualization. And just to demystify a little bit, it wasn't this like pyramid where it's like you go higher and higher over time. It was more like these are all happening at the same time. And it's more likely the stuff at the bottom of the pyramid, like having food is going to be met than things like being self-actualized. Um, but that idea of self-actualization, right? So in his life, he found that very few people in the world, right? In the white world were self-actualized. But among the Siksika, he found that most of them were. And what he... The Siksika would never use the term self-actualized, but one of their fundamental core assumptions was that self-actualization isn't something you eventually ascend to. Self-actualization is you are born with it. The universe wants you to be here, right? There's nothing wrong with you. Now, if you start with that assumption, that affects how you raise kids, right? I'm not going to do a lot of very guarded parental kind of like stuff. I'm actually going to get out of your way. I'm going to try to make sure you don't get eaten by a wolf. Other than that, I'm just going to let you become who you are. Sure. Um, sure. Crying, right? I'm not going to say, well, you must be a bad person. That's why you committed that crime. No, no, no. I already established that you started out fine. Something went wrong. We failed you in some way. You failed us in some way. Let's circle around and figure out what to do. But it's not like I got to lock you away somewhere so you don't hurt anybody. No, I actually have to embrace you now and figure out what's going on. And my favorite, poverty. Maslow found it frustratingly difficult to find any poor people in the group. Because wealth was determined by how much you gave away. The person who gave away the most in a year is the wealthiest person that year. Now think about that. Think if you were playing a video game. And the only way you could ascend in the video game is by giving away points, not by getting them. How would that change your behavior in the game? You would spend a considerable amount of that game looking for people to give your points to. Right? Think about that in terms of capitalism. You would shift from looking for people to take money from to looking for people to give money to. Like, I don't even know how to, I can't get my head around that. But that's the assumption they were starting from. And so anytime, the reason you can't find poor people is anytime somebody was in need, it would be like, oh, let's make you whole. That was the instinct. It was mind boggling to them that you would pass uh, poor, that you would, there would even be poor people in European culture. Like that just, they couldn't get, why aren't you giving them your, you have, What's why are you giving them 40 acres and a mule? Yeah, why, why are you, why, I don't understand. Like, they literally could, the same way we can't get our heads around, oh, yeah, clearly you should be spending all your time looking for people to give stuff to. Like, they couldn't get their heads around, clearly you should be spending all your time trying to get money from people. Um, but that 
a world that starts from that assumption of we're all actually very, very, very good. We fuck up because we're people. And when we fuck up, we need to circle up and, and fix it. But it's not because any of us are bad people, right? That a world that starts from that assumption, I would love to see that world. And if like my impact is to bring us like two millimeters closer to that world instead of two millimeters further away from that world, I'm like, job well done. Well, friends, please show your appreciation for David Dylan Thomas. My thanks to my guest, David Dylan Thomas. You can follow him on Twitter at movie underscore pundit. Subscribe to both of his podcasts, the Cognitive Bias Podcast and Lately I've Been Thinking About, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can buy the book Designed for Cognitive Bias at the links in the episode description below. And my thanks to Venture Cafe Philadelphia for hosting the taping. The house manager in charge of Venture Cafe is Selena Lopez McKenzie, and you can check out their website, VentureCafePhiladelphia.org, to learn more about the free gatherings they offer every Thursday afternoon. Thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia on the unceded land of the Lenny Lenape tribe and the Black Bottom community. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and a comment. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed caption video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon goods.